There's a well-known, uh, well, very often observed uh, spectrum within the world of evangelical Christianity, a spectrum where on one end of on one end of the spectrum you have uh, professing Christians who will die on every single hill, who will say that you must believe every single one of an enormous list of, uh, of of doctrines if you're to genuinely be called a Christian and fellowship with and minister with such people. But then, of course, at the other end of the spectrum, you've got people who think that all you got to do is claim to follow Christ, and boom, that's it. That makes you a Christian. Where within that spectrum should the line, in fact, be drawn? Should a line be drawn at all? Is such a line important? And if so, why? Uh, and if it is important, just what? could be con uh, considered the essentials of the Christian faith. Those are the kinds of things that we tackle in today's episode of The Apologetics. Hi, this is Chris Date, and welcome to The Apologetics where every other week I discuss a wide variety of theological issues and show how a properly biblical worldview can help defend the historic Christian faith from its critics. Join me as we think through what we believe and why we believe it, and not something else. As a reminder, Theopologetics, the show that you're watching right now, is part of the Trinity Commission, which is a network of YouTube shows and podcasts and things that are uh, hosted and created by people that in one way, shape, or form are um, uh, related in, you know, it, uh, they have some sort of connection with the seminary at which I teach. I'm an adjunct professor of Bible and theology at Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary, the school over which uh, Braxton Hunter is president and Jonathan and Pritchett is Vice President for Academics. Um, the shows that are included in the Trinity Commission include not only uh, The Apologetics, but also Steve Gregg's The Narrow Path, Braxton Hunter and Jonathan Pritchett's Trinity Radio, Leighton Flowers' Soteriology 101, and others. So if you want to learn uh, Christian theology and, you know, basics of the Christian faith and, and other things like that, apologetics issues in an informal capacity, um, whether or not you're also getting a formal degree, uh, then the members of the Trinity Commission might be shows that you would like to consider watching and or listening to. So do a Facebook search for the Trinity Commission and you'll be able to find a, uh, a Facebook page that has the list of those shows, including this one. Um, and I'd encourage you to check all those other shows out. Um, I'd also like to encourage you, if you're if you're somebody that's looking for a Christian higher education, a college or seminary education, um, but you have neither the money nor the time, or perhaps neither the interest in getting a, uh, a degree at a brick and mortar, a traditional brick and mortar institution, then Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary might just be for you. So if that's something that you might be interested in, check out trinitysem.edu, that's S-E-M, which is short for seminary, trinitysem.edu, and learn more about the various programs that are available there. Maybe, just maybe, you and I will get to see each other in class, uh, and I can, uh, I, I can make you 
jump through hoops in order to make me happy so that you can get a good grade. That's obviously a joke. Uh, so with that stuff out of the way, um, let me, I want to do a couple of quick shout outs. First of all, Peter, Susan, and Shannon in the chat. Um, I know you three are watching live right now. That means the world to me. Thank you. Um, when I look at the, when I look at my YouTube screen that shows the number of current watching viewers, I'm used to seeing maybe one, maybe two, sometimes zero. And it is a little discouraging to be doing a live stream when there's such a small live audience. So the fact that you three are there, the fact that Susan and Peter, you guys are moderating, that means the world to me. I really appreciate it. And for all others that are watching live, I really appreciate that as well. Um, but I do want to say that if you didn't, if you're watching this after it's been published to the channel, after I streamed live, oh, thank you also, Jimmy. It means the world to me. I really appreciate it. Um, and there are a few others, uh, in one in particular, who I'm going to give a shout out to in a moment. Um, but, it, but even those of you who don't watch live, but do watch after the episode has been published to my channel, it means the world to me that you watch as well. Um, I, I just want to be a servant and help, uh, you know, contribute to the edification of the church and even a small hand view, full of viewers, both live and after recording, um, makes all the difference for me. It gives me the encouragement to keep on going. So thank you. Um, the one shout out that I wanted to give a special or the, the, the one special shout out that I wanted to give is to a friend of mine, um, and all the other people I just mentioned are friends as well, so <laughs> don't get don't get me wrong. Uh, but the friend in particular that I have in mind is, is named Isaiah Burridge. Um, he has been, he and his wife uh, have been guests on this very YouTube show. Um, he is right now in the hospital uh, recovering, I think, from a bone marrow transplant. If you watched the previous episode of The Apologetics in which I interviewed Isaiah and his wife, you'll know that he has fought uh, um, uh, cancer for a great portion of his life and right now he's uh, he, he's experienced great remission in that cancer so praise God for that uh, but he is in the hospital recovering from a bone marrow tra uh, transplant or awaiting one one or the other um, and I think he said he was gonna be watching my show tonight um, so Isaiah uh, just a shout out to you thank you for watching my show thank you for being such a blessed friend uh, you bless me and um, it just means the world to me that that I have you as a friend and as a uh, follower of of my ministry that's awesome and by the way Isaiah had a really encouraging post on in the <laughs> Peter says he can always condescend if that helps great um, uh, but Isaiah posted a really cool thing on Facebook uh, today he said that he was sitting in his bed um, in the hospital and he had a book next to him uh, on his uh, on his table. I'm trying to pull up his Facebook post really quick so I can tell you about it. I just was really encouraged. It was awesome. Yeah, so he had a book um, sitting next to him on his uh, on his bedside table called The Historical Reliability of the Gospels. And one of the doctors came and asked him, uh, saw that book and asked Isaiah about it um, and was so interested that he took a snapshot of the cover so that he could refer to it later and, and possibly get a copy of it. That's awesome. Um, and it just goes to show how just little tiny things that you can do as a Christian um, can be Become, can spur gospel conversations with people who either are already in the faith, but are maybe uh, something somewhat immature spiritually, but also people that are outside of the faith and so desperately need Jesus. Um, we can do very small things like simply having a book about the reliability of the gospels next to us in a in a hotel bed or sorry a hospital bed, um, and and we can we can be instruments, even agents of God's work of reconciliation. And I just think that is amazing. So Isaiah, kudos to you. Um, and again, thank you for being my friend and, uh, um, uh, and, and a fan of the show. 
Now, one reason I, I wanted to give that particular shout out is because Isaiah, among many other people I'm friends with, is an example of somebody with whom I agree on a number of issues, um, but with whom I also disagree on some issues. In particular, I'm thinking of the question of the identity of Israel. So if I'm not mistaken, Isaiah believes that New Testament references to Israel are at least sometimes references to the church, whereas I do not believe that to be the case. I think that Israel in the New Testament is either a reference to all biological descendants of uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or to the redeemed portion thereof, the remnant. Um, so we disagree on that. Uh, he is also... Um, uh, a dualist. He believes in a conscious intermediate state where the disembodied souls of human beings remain conscious while awaiting resurrection, re, you know, reunification with resurrection bodies. Uh, in fact, I was on his show where I was presenting my alternative to that, uh, otherwise known as non-reductive physicalism. So we disagree on that, and there are certainly going to be other things that we likely disagree on as well. Um, but we agree on on a core, very important set of doctrines, and and that really is, uh, I want to treat as a springboard for the uh, for the episode that I'm presenting to you today. This is going to be the first of two or three parts, all dis all discussing what I'm calling uh, the the watchword of Christian peacemakers, and I'll talk to you about that in a moment. Um, but this but this means we need to get into a just a little bit of a history lesson. Um, don't worry if you're if you're somewhat averse to the his, you know education in history. I'm not going to give you a lot, but I do think that it's worthwhile for us as Christians to know at least a little bit of historical details surrounding some of the things that we believe and cherish uh, today. So what I want to do as, to introduce this issue, uh, this thing that I'm calling the watchword of Christian peacemakers, by the way, I didn't come up with that, uh, and I'll explain in a moment. Um, what I want to do to get us uh, to, to introduce this is to is is to walk through a a, a, a period of history um, shortly after, well, beginning with and, and shortly after the Protestant Reformation. Actually, I guess it would be, you know, in the throes of the Protestant Reformation. And I want to start with what is called the Marburg Conference. If I, I hope I'm pronouncing the Marburg Conference correctly. The, Mar the Marburg Conference was held between October 1st and 4th of 1529. Um, this was shortly after, a few years after the onset of the Protestant Reformation, um, of, you know, a, a decade or so. I don't remember, what is it, 15, 17, somewhere around there, Luther nailed his theses to the, uh, or at least mythically, to the church door at the castle of Wittenberg. Um, and, and this is shortly after that, if my timing is correctly. But anyway, this Marburg Conference was meant to resolve a dispute within Protestantism over the relationship between Christ and communion, the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist. You see, when uh, it, the, the Protestant reformers initially, uh, some of them at least, like Luther and, and, and his followers, the Lutherans, believed something quite similar to the Roman Catholic doctrine of, of um, uh, transubstantiation. So if you're not aware of this, Roman Catholics have a, dog, a dogma known as transubst transubstantiation, according to which the bread and wine of the Lord's Supper are literally and entirely transformed into the literal body, flesh, and blood of Christ. Um, the the thing that doesn't change is the accidents, the the appearances of the things, the tastes, the sights, the smells, etc. But nevertheless, it's no longer bread and it's no longer wine. It is now literally the flesh and blood of Christ. Luther and the Lutherans um, 
again, I'm, I'm, I might be a little mistaken here, but my understanding is that they um, continued to believe in this idea of, of what's called the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, which means that the bread and the wine are indeed the blood and uh, flesh of Christ. However, unlike the Roman Catholics, who believe in transubstantiation, Lutherans believe in a doctrine known as consubstantiation, according to which the bread, and, and notice the difference in, in, in prefix at the beginning of that word, right? So transubstantiation means that the substances have been transformed, whereas consubstantiation is the notion that con, it's, it, it, it's um, together, Right, so so the it, with consubstantiation, the bread and the wine hasn't been transformed into the blood and, uh, and uh, the flesh and blood of Christ, but rather, the bread and wine be, are conjoined with the blood and flesh of Christ. And so, in the Eucharist, you have both blood, uh, so both bread and wine, and the flesh and blood of Christ. But this isn't what all the Protestant reformers believed. Luther and his followers believed in that real presence, consubstantiation kind of an idea, which is very similar to the Roman Catholic dogma. But Zwingli and other non-Lutheran reformers believed in a uh, in something more like what we evangelical Protestants typically believe, which is uh, that the Eucharist, the communion, the Lord's Supper, is a uh, a symbolic sacrament. The um, Christ is there, but not not in a way that the real presence model in Lutheran's uh, consubstantiation puts it. Um, the, the, it, it the, the bread and the wine remain just that, bread and wine. And we partake of the elements in remembrance of, in memorial of, the broken body and spilled blood of Jesus Christ. And in this early point in the Reformation, the Luther's, you know, the Luther's wing, Luther's wing of the Protestant Reformation, and Zwingli's uh, wing, wing of the Protestant Reformation were in, in bitter uh, opposition to one another over that issue. And the Marburg Conf Conference was convened in order to try to come up with some sort of resolution to that, that dispute. Now, as it turns out, the conference was not able to resolve that dispute. Lutherans continued to believe in the real presence of Christ in the, in the Eucharist and, and consubstantiation, whereas Zwingli and the other reformers continued to believe in the, the more symbolic reality of the Eucharist. But what the conference did end with was a mutual commitment to, Christian, to treating each other with Christian charity. And interestingly, the Zwingli wing of the Protestant reformers uh, seemed to be completely on board with considering their Lutherans, uh, their, their Lutheran counterparts to be brothers and sisters in Christ. Luther, on the other hand, um, was not comfortable with considering Zwingli and the others to be brothers and sisters in Christ, but he did commit to showing uh, Christian charity to the Zwingli wing, um, but with the caveat of to, to the extent that it would be uh, consistent with his conscience, his Holy Spirit-led conscience. conscience. I think, however, that Lutheran was something of an exception in that regard on the Luther, the Luther was something of an exception on that side of the Protestant Reformation. I think that more of his wing was closer to the Zwingli wing in terms of considering each other brothers and sisters in Christ. But I could be wrong about that. So, so this is sort of the starting point in our historical survey here, our very brief historical survey, is this, is this Marburg Conference in which this bitter dispute that uh, was, you know, it was a violent one at times between the Lutheran wing and the Zwingli wing of the Protestant reformers 
they weren't able to resolve their dispute over the nature of the Eucharist, but they were able to agree that they are beholden by, you know, as part of their calling in Christ to treat each other with Christian charity, at least to the extent that the Holy Spirit is working within their conscience, <coughs> which is a little bit of a um, convenient escape hatch as far as I'm concerned. But anyway, that, that's where we're at so far in history. Now, I want to fast forward um, almost, well, almost a hundred years later and then for a few decades beyond to what is called the Thirty Years' War, a uh, painting of which is up on the screen right now. The Thirty, war, the 30 Years' War began in 1618, so we're talking just under a century after the Marburg Confession, and it extended to 1648. All right, so we're talking about 40 or 30, yeah, the 30 years war. And this is, if you if you look this up, you'll find that it's one of the most brutal, violent, bloody wars in uh, human history. Over 8 million were killed or, or died as a result either from the military battles uh, that were fought as part of this 30 years war or because of the famine and disease that resulted from this war. So, so it was an ab absolutely bloody, violent, terrible conflict. And importantly, for our little bit of a historical survey, this war began, and to at least some extent remained, a conflict between Roman, Ca uh, Roman Catholics on the one hand, I, I keep putting my hand up, I keep gesticulating to my left and to my right, and forget that all you can see is my head right now. Um, but anyway, uh, it started and to one extent or another remained a conflict between Roman Catholics and Protestants, specifically the, the, the nations that were part of the Holy Roman Empire, some of which were Roman Catholic states, others of which were Protestant states. And so this, there was this religious conflict between professing Christians um, that just resulted in an inordinate, unjustifiable amount of bloodshed and death. And that brings us then to Rupertus Meldenius. Rupertus Meldenius was born in 1582, so a few decades before the onset of the Thirty Years' War, and he died just a few years after it concluded. And his real name was Peter Miterlin or Muterlinus. I don't know how to pronounce that. Uh, but you'll notice the difference between his real name and the title, you know, this, the name by which he is known, Rupertus Meldenius. And that's because um, in the throes, in the middle of this violent, bloody conflict between religious parties, um, he published an appeal for unity and love among disagreeing Christians, and he published it pseudonymously. His pseudonym that he used was Rupertus Meldenius, and he did this, I think, to protect his life, right? There were going to be people on, uh, and, and by the way, I should say, there. I don't know enough to know whether Peter Miterlin, otherwise known as Rupertus Meldenius, I don't know whether he was trying to call for unity and love between Catholics and Protestants, or, and I suspect this is more likely, he was calling for l unity and love between uh, factions within Protestantism. Um... Uh, thank you, Jesus says in the chat that Susan should be moderator. She is. That's one that I, I thanked her at the very beginning of the show. Um, so I think that what was probably happening was that Meldenius was calling for uh, unity and love between competing factions within Protestantism. And sometimes, even within Protestantism, these conflicts were brutal and violent and bloody and death-inducing. Uh, death and so I think that he 
he, he publishes pseudonymously in order to uh, prevent his identity from becoming known and then, you know, incurring the wrath of one or the other of these two parties within Protestantism. Um, and, and, and he published appealing desperately for unity and love, again, between either Roman Catholics and Protestants or, more likely, between different factions within Protestantism. The publication in question that he published pseudonymously is known by, or was known by that Latin phrase that I'm not even going to attempt to read to you, but a rough translation of that Latin phrase is a reminder for peace at the Church of the Augsburg Confession of Theologians. And in this publication, he wrote this long Latin sentence, which again, I'm not even going to attempt to read, but it's trans translated into English, it means something like this. If we preserve unity in essentials, liberty in non-essentials, and charity in both, our affairs will be in the best position. Now that might ring a bell to you if you're familiar with a shortened version of that phrase. You see this more lengthy Latin uh, sentence that Rupertus Meldenius otherwise known as Peter Melde uh, Peter, whatever I said his name was in a few slides ago. Um, you might be fam more familiar with the shortened version of that phrase that has become popular, which is, again, Latin I'm not going to attempt to read to you, but it's translated something like, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. In fact, you, I, I suspect you've probably heard of that phrase, and if you have... I think there's at least a decent chance you think that Augustine is the person who came up with this phrase, but that's a popular misconception. Um, Augustine did not come up with this in the 5th or 6th century B or AD when he uh, lived and wrote. It was rather some thousand plus years later that this was come up with by, you know, as a popularization, a, a shortened popularization of what Rupertus Meldenius had said. So this this... English translation of the more popular, shortened version of Rupertus Meldenius's phrase is uh, the focus of this episode and then a part two and possibly part three coming up in later in this, uh, in this show. But there's one more historical figure that I want to look at, and that's Philip Schaff. And this is where I'm going to get to the point where I explain... Um, uh, why I explained that the, the watchword peacemakers language that I used earlier, and that is the title of this episode. Philip Schaff was born evidently on the very first day of the new year, uh, 1819, and then he died some, uh, you know, 74 years later in 1893. He was born in Switzerland and educated in, in Stuttgart, I think is how you would say that in German. It's, it's uh, Germany. He was a Protestant theologian and more uh, and, and more than that, he's recognized as an ecclesiastical or church historian. And where I first learned about the real origins of this phrase was in a publication of Schaff's called History of the Christian Church. It's, a, it's an eight-volume, enormous piece of work published in 1877. Um, and in particular, in volume seven, Philip Schaff writes this. It was during the fiercest dogmatic controversies and the horrors of the Thirty Years' War that a prophetic voice whispered to future generations the watchword of Christian peacemakers. Which was unheeded, unfortunately, in a century of intolerance, namely the century of intolerance that saw the Thirty Years' War. 
and it was forgotten in a century of indifference. But, and here again, Schaff is writing in the late 1800s, it, is th it then is resounding with increased force in a century of revival and reunion. And then he quotes Rupertus Maldanius's in Essentials Unity phrase. Um, so this is why I'm calling it this this series the watchword of Christian peacemakers is because this phrase in essentials unity in non-essentials liberty in all things charity is what Philip Schaff called the watchword of Christian peacemakers. Now the peacemaker part of that will probably already be familiar to you. It's, it comes from Matthew 5 9. It's the Beatitudes. And one of the Beatitudes Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. And I see Jimmy Acri saying in the chat that this phrase, this watchword of Christian peacemakers has been a lifelong ambition of his. And it's mine too. This is one of my biggest passions. Uh, five, six years ago at the second annual Rethinking Hell conference, um, I explained that the reason why I have devoted so much of my life as an adult to the doctrine of hell is precisely because of the way that it grievously and unjustifiably divides Christians. The doctrine of hell ought not to do so. Um, and yet it does. And I think the fact that it does grieves the Lord's heart. And it certainly grieves mine. So this is something that's particularly passionate about uh, to me. There's something I'm passionate about. But anyway, that's that's where the word peacemakers is going to come from. That you might be familiar with. The the word watchword, however, I think has not really continued to be popular in ordinary English parlance. A watchword, according to Merriam-Webster's dictionary, is a word or motto that embodies a principle or guide to action of an individual or group. A guiding principle. So if you don't like watchword, then you could then you could just think in this series that what I'm trying to encourage all of us Christians to do is to follow this guiding principle, this this call to action that is in that is in the form of something that is that it's meant to to foster peace amongst Christians. And that call to action, that guiding principle is an essentials unity, non-essentials liberty and in all things charity. So you've got these three parts of this watchword, this call to action. In Essentials Unity is number one, and then you've got the other two. And the episode today that we're going through now is going to be um, looking at that first one, In Essentials Unity. We're going to talk briefly about unity, and then we're going to talk about what the essentials are, at least according to me and a few others. Then, in uh, the other two parts of the watchword, non-essentials liberty and all things charity, I'll cover those in future episodes as part of this series. So we'll talk about what it, how it is that Christians can lovingly tolerate each other on the non-essentials, and, and, and you know what it is that that looks like, how we can minister together. I'm, I'm going to try to cover some things like that. But, of course, as I said, this first part of the watchword is about unity on the essentials. So... Um, the, the texts that I see in scripture that most clearly call for the kind of unity that uh, that this watchword is meant to encourage are, first of all, John 17. This is what is known as Jesus's high priestly prayer. He's praying to his father um, in the Garden of Gethsemane, what I, if I remember correctly, is the evening of or the, or the evening before his crucifixion. 
And in so Shannon mentions in the uh, chat here that we all agree on the Apostles' Creed. Well, yeah, I think we should. I won't be citing the Apostles' Creed in this presentation, but I will be citing the subsequent creeds that I think cover what the Apostles' Creed says. But anyway, in his high priestly prayer, Jesus says he prays to his father that they, that is those who believe in him, may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they all uh, that they also may be in us. Now notice at least the stated reason why Jesus prays for this kind of Christian unity. He says it's so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So peaceful, loving, tolerant unity amongst Christians is an indication to the larger world that Christianity is true, that Christ is God's agent of reconciliation. So what does it mean when as Christians we bite and devour each other? What, is it, what does it tell the world when we divide from one another over petty things, and even not so petty things, but nevertheless things that aren't essential to the faith? It tells the world that our confession is baloney. Another text is what Paul says in Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. He calls Christians to walk in a manner worthy of the calling unto which you were called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So you can see here that Christians, if they're going to walk in a manner commensurate with their calling, they are to foster, strive for unity in the spirit, one where we bear, up, bear with one another, we tolerate each other in love, and we treat each other with humility and gentleness and patience. And I'm sure we could turn to other texts as well. But based on those texts and others, um, I agree with Tim Challies. He's got an, an article. You can, you can easily find this online to search for Tim Challies, 12 Ways to Preserve Christian Unity. He says this, Satan's great plan for the church is to cause Christians to find ways, not just of disagreeing among themselves, but to divide, to be bitter and jealous, and ultimately to bite and devour one another. He goes on to say that it is God's loss and your loss and it is Satan's gain when you will not walk in love with other Christians, when you will not work arm in arm together with those with whom you have so much in common. Challies is right. It is your loss and it is Satan's gain when you divide and refuse to fellowship and minister with brothers and sisters in Christ uh, who disagree with you on non-essentials of the faith. However, um, what this kind of unity calls for, if it's to mean anything at all, is at least a core confession, something, uh, uh, an identifying set of essential beliefs that, that, that define what it means to be a Christian. A core confession upon which Christians can all agree. Without that, Christian unity means little to nothing. Right? We can say, yeah, as long as you profess Christ, we're with you. We're with you. Okay, but what does it mean to profess Christ? And whom do you identify as Christ? 
right? Just in order for you to have a body of Christians united, willing to tolerate each other uh, on the non-essentials of the faith, then you have to have a list of essentials by which you can identify who Christians are. And that's why this first aspect of the three aspects of the watchword of Christian peacemakers in essentials unity is really important. Um, C. Michael Patton, he puts it this way in his Essentials and Non-Essentials in a Nutshell. And again, you can easily find this online by searching for that. He says, we have our share of those with more of a fundamentalist mindset who have a thousand lines drawn in the sand in the name of truth. But we also have our share of liberals whose mindset compels them to erase as many lines as possible in the name of grace or love. See, Michael Patton is right. We've got to be careful. We've got to balance not just grace on the one hand. Again, I'm putting my hand up outside of frame. Not just grace, but also truth. These have to be balanced. And even balance might be the wrong word. It's not that it's 50% grace and 50% truth. It's that it's 100% of both. But, but so exercising both grace and adhering to truth in that kind of way requires this kind of core set of essentials that we can treat as identifying Christians. Otherwise, again, it makes really no there's no there is no meaning to Christian unity. So, with all of that sort of prolegomena out of the way, the natural question this leads to is what are the essentials? And I'm going to attempt um, to come up with a list of 15 essentials. I'm going to offer um, some brief justification for them. Um, and it doesn't necessarily, 15 is, is just an arbitrary number based on um, fitting things on the screen. You, depending upon how you condense these, you could make it shorter, you could break every single element of every single one of them up and have more than 15. But nevertheless, I think that this is a pretty good list. And I think it's a list that, that you'll find is at most what the vast majority of evangelicals um, have identified as being essential. In other words, I don't think you will find any published, respected, um, acknowledged, agreed upon lists of essentials amongst evangelicals that goes beyond this list. You might find some that have fewer items on the list than mine. And I respect that. Um, even if I might think that their lists are missing something. Um, but at the very least, this list I think is comprehensive enough to cover everything that evangelicals could possibly justify as being essential. That's what I'm going to attempt to do now. And as the um, starting point for this, we can look at what Paul says in Romans 10:9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You see, John Piper, he begins his he begins to exp extrapolate from this text um, a list of essentials by saying by observing based on this text that it, and you can find this on John Piper's website Desiring God just search for what must someone believe in order to be saved he writes well he says and then it's transcripted a person that doesn't believe he is a sinner can't be saved. Right. If, this, if going back to Romans ten nine, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Well, you can't being saved. It doesn't make any any sense here, unless you recognize that 
you're a sinner. If you're, if you're, if there's nothing to forgive, then Jesus didn't do anything for me. And if he didn't do anything for me, I'm not believing in him for salvation. So I think we can extrapolate from this text. I think John Piper is right that we can extrapolate from this text that one essential of the Christian faith is the recognition that everyone has sinned. I should have put an asterisk here because Jesus did not. Um, but accepting Jesus, everyone has sinned. I think that's a legitimate first. Now, mind you, by the way, this does not demand a belief in original sin. For those of you who don't know, original sin is a doctrine um, that is somewhat differently understood by different people, but at its core is the notion that all human beings are conceived with a predisposition to sin. They're born with a sin nature. And because they're born with a sin nature, they are guaranteed to sin uh, once they are old enough to act. Um, now, there are extensions of, uh, expansions of that core concept that, are, that, are, that is sometimes considered to be part of original sin, like the concept of original guilt, that every person is conceived already uh, guilty in, in God's thinking because of Adam's and Eve's, or just Adam's if you're a complementarian, uh, federal headship. That because Adam is the federal head of humankind, he sinned, and therefore everyone descended from him is counted as having sinned. Now, a lot of Christians, or I should, at the very least, a lot of professing Christians deny one or both of those aspects of original sin. And yet, I just spoke to one, what was it, yesterday or the day before? It was the day before. Um, who despite denying any of those aspects of original sin, nevertheless affirms that everyone has sinned, provided they don't die while they're still in, say, infancy or whatever. And, and you know, we could talk about why, you know, how they justify that claim. But the point I'm getting at is that this essential only requires the acknowledgement that everyone has sinned. It doesn't require a belief in original sin. Now, whether or not original sin is an essential is something that... Um, I have yet to uh, determine for myself, and so it won't be listed in this list of essentials. But I might change my mind one day, and, and we might end up having 16. But anyway, so that's the first essential. Now, John Piper goes on to further extrapolate from that text that we just looked at and from his first observation. He says, sin, by definition, is falling short of the expectations of your creator, you wouldn't have sin if you didn't have a creator whose expectations you could violate. So there has to be a creator God out there who has expectations of humans. God expects humans to trust him, love him, and live for him. So we have a second essential, accountability to the creator, which innately includes the, the fact that there is a creator. This is why I'm saying you could take some of these and break them down even further to more granular parts. But accountability to the creator is, is what I'm calling this. In other words... It makes no sense to call yourself a Christian if you're an atheist. But as many of you will know, there are atheists professing to be Christians, which is simply nonsensical. All right. John Piper goes on to say, because we fail to trust, love, and live for, for that God to whom we are accountable, we are under his holy judgment, his wrath. You've got to believe that. Now, I'm not saying you've got to believe that his judgment is wrath. Wrath is, you know, is, is an English word that has certain connotations that you may or may not accept. I do, but you may not. The point here is not so much the word wrath and its connotations, but the fact that we, are, we stand condemned, we stand guilty before God because of our sin. 
So I'm calling this judgment of God upon sin. It's not saying what the nature of that judgment is or anything. It's just the fact that we stand guilty before God. Um, we are by from conception seen by, or at least since our, from the moment we first sin, we we are seen by God as guilty and deserving of judgment, whatever the nature of that judgment might be. So so far, I think that John Piper is rightly extrapolating from that text we looked at these three essentials. But he goes on, you've got to believe in the deity of Jesus. Uh, when we say the deity of Jesus, we mean that he is God incarnate. He is God in human flesh. John Piper says, Psalm 49 says that no man can pay a ransom for another man. A few verses later in verse 15, it says God will pay the ransom. And you know what? John Piper's right. I didn't even realize this before. And I published a book in defense. It's, in fact, it's right uh, here, a debate book on the the identity of Jesus in which I argued for the deity of Christ. And I didn't even think of Psalm 49. Here's what it says. Verses 7 and 9 read, No man can ransom another, or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live forever and never see the pit. Do you see what the psalmist is saying? No man can ransom another man from the pit, from the grave, from death. But verse 15, in verse 15, the psalmist says, God will ransom my soul or life from the power of Sheol, the grave, the pit, death. And I'll add what Jesus says in John 8, 24, that unless you believe that I am, you, uh, you will die in your sins. Notice I left the word he out. That's because the word he isn't there. The phrase ego a me is I am. So Jesus literally says, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Now, it's possible um, to have the word he or she, if you're speaking and you're a woman, um, to, to be implied, right? So let's say um, you are on a plane and somebody falls to the ground convulsing and a and one of the um uh what are they called now flight attendants one of the flight attendants calls out desperately looking for help uh is is anybody here a doctor you could raise your hand and say i am and and it would be implied the the the, the word he or she if you're a woman is implied there right i am a doctor right you don't have to supply the predicate or, or more specifically, the the um, the the complement of the subject, right? You've got a subject as I, you've got a predicate M, and then you, the predicate could also include a complement like a doctor. So I am a doctor, but you don't have to say a doctor after somebody asks, "Is anybody here a doctor?" You can just say I am. But there's nothing like that in John eight twenty four, and in many of the other places that Jesus uses I am. There is no implicit uh, compliment to the subject. And so many theologians, I think, rightly recognize here a profession of deity. Because you have just a, one among many places in the Old Testament in which Yahweh, the God of Israel, like in Isaiah 43.10, says, Believe me and understand that I am. There is no he there. I am. So... Whether you, uh, if you don't think that Psalm 49 suffices, then hopefully in conjunction with John 8, 24 and Isaiah 43, 10, you could agree with me that the deity of Christ is now a fourth essential of the faith. But now let's look at the creeds. 
Um, thank you, Darren, for your comment in the chat. That means a lot. Um, the Nicene Creed is one of a, a small number of ecumenical creeds that Protestants recognize as authoritative. Now, when we say that, when I say that we recognize that it, these are authoritative, I don't mean that they share, they're on the same level or plane of authority as scripture itself. No, as Protestants, as remember what I, what I discussed last episode of this show, the doctrine of sola scriptura, we believe that scripture is the only fa infallible rule of faith and practice, but it doesn't mean it's the only rule of faith and practice. The ecumenical creeds, uh, at least the first three or four of them in the early church, Protestants also recognize as authoritative, not on par with scripture, it's subject to scripture down here, whereas scripture is up here. But nevertheless, we see them as authoritative because what you had was Christians from all around, from all throughout Christendom, every you know sect and branch of, of Christendom, both East and West, agreeing that we as the church confess these things together. Um, Susan or Shannon earlier mentioned the Apostles' Creed. That isn't technically one of the ecumenical creeds because it wasn't a council. It was the Apostles' Creed is, in fact, it doesn't even go back to the Apostles, um, but it is something that Christians confessed leading up to these ecumenical creeds. And then the ecumenical creeds begin, I think, with the, 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 the Council of Nicaea. Um, and then you've also got the Chalcedonian Creed. We'll be looking at that in a moment. Um, and then there are others. But um, the Nicene and Chalcedonian ones are the, are the ones that I'm going to look at here today. And the Nicene Creed, again, confessed by the whole church, says, I believe in one God, the Father, in one Lord, Jesus Christ, very God of very God, and in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and giver of life, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified. So what do you have here? You have a fifth essential, the doctrine of the Trinity. Now there's a lot of different ways we could understand the Trinity. We could understand it in a more Latin way, uh, one in which the uh, it, it, the the triune the, the members of the triune Godhead are um, they're not uh, individual. It's not a it's not a community of individuals. It's it's um, uh, it's it's. Frankly, it's it's a little bit difficult to explain, and I don't even know that I fully understand it. Um, but you, but then there's also what's called the social trinity, which is what uh, non-Latin Trinitarians tend to believe, which is the concept that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are individuals, individual persons within the Godhead. That it's a it's a it's a community of individuals in a way that the Latin understanding of the Trinity is not. But either way, and whether or not you affirm the eternal generation of the Son and stuff like that, regardless of all of that we can all affirm that God is triune. So, um, and, and Susan, you're asking about 1 Corinthians 15. I think I'm gonna get to what you have in mind, even though I won't get to that actual text. I should've, I should've, I should've mentioned 1 Corinthians 15 now that I think about it, but I didn't. But nevertheless, I think I'll cover what you have in mind. So based on what the church collectively confessed to be true early on in its, in its history, um, I identify as a, an essential of the Christian faith, the Trinity, Trinity, and I think so should you. But the Creed also says, I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, who was incarnate by the Holy Ghost of the Virgin Mary. That, that's a clunky way of putting it. He, the, he was incarnate of the Virgin Mary by the Holy Ghost. And he was crucified, was buried, and rose again, shall come again. 
So what we see here, Susan, I think, is what you have in mind from 1 Corinthians 15, the, the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. But we also have here the virgin birth. And we have his future return. Now, the virgin birth, I'll, I'll be honest with you, until I prepared this study right now, I would have not counted the virgin birth as an essential of the faith. In fact, in a recent broadcast I did, I don't remember where, an interview, a debate, something like that, I said the virgin birth isn't necessarily an essential of the faith. But it's right there in the Nicene Creed. Um, so I think I kind of do have to count it as an essential. And his future return rules out hyperpreterists who deny the future return of Christ. And then, like I said, 1 Corinthians 15 is what I think, I think, Susan, when you mentioned 1 Corinthians 15, you have his the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ in mind. Now, Shannon asks if numbers 4 and 5 back here, the deity of Jesus Christ and the in the Trinity, exclude the Pentecostal? No. So, Shannon, you might be under the misconception that Pentecostals deny the deity of Christ and his triunity, his trini the, the, trinity, the, the triune nature of God, but they don't. Pentecostals affirm both of those things. The ones who deny number five are oneness Pentecostals. Oneness Pentecostals deny the doctrine of the Trinity, but they don't deny the deity of Christ. They think that Christ is the Father incarnate. So, yes, Oneness Pentecostals, although they affirm the deity of Christ, deny the doctrine of the Trinity, and as such, don't count as Christians. But but the Pentecostal denomination aren't oneness. They, they, they don't affirm, um, they, they don't deny the Trinity. So, Shannon, hopefully that answers your question. Um, four and five do not rule out Pentecostals. You can count Pentecostals, your brothers and sisters in Christ. Anyway, so going back to the uh, what we see in the Nicene Creed, we see number six, the virgin birth of Jesus. Number seven, we see the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Number eight, we see his future return. Obviously, seven is an example, again, where you could break it out into much smaller, smaller parts if you wanted to make the list longer, but death, burial, and resurrection kind of naturally go together well, don't they? So we're up to eight of 15. But the Nicene Creed says more. And here we're going to get a little interesting. A little more interesting. The, the creed says, I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Now, importantly, the word Catholic here does not refer to the Roman Catholic church. It refers to the universal church, meaning the church everywhere, all over the globe. And the creed confesses also that we believe in one baptism for the remission of sins. That's the interesting one. Uh, and the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. So now we can add another three elements to our list. Number nine, the unity of the global church. Number 10, baptism for sin, the remission of sin, and I'm, I'll come to that in a second. And number 11, the future resurrection of the dead. Again, ruling out hyperpreterists. Now, I put an asterisk next to baptism for sin because here's what I want to emphasize. I think the Nicene Creed requires that we consider baptism for the remission of sins to be an essential of the faith because it affirms it. However, what it means... What baptism for the remission of sins means is up for some debate. Does baptism for the remission of sins mean immersion for the remission of sins? Probably not. By the point, by the time the Nicene Creed was um, agreed upon, I'm pretty sure baptism was often administered by sprinkling, which I think Presbyterians consider to be a, a proper mode of, of baptism. 
So baptism, acknowledging the essentiality of baptism for the remission of sins does not require that you affirm immersion for the remission of sins. And I would add also that what it means that baptism is for the remission of sins is itself up for debate. Um, people who affirm baptismal regeneration, the idea that it is the act of baptism that regenerates you, or others who believe that baptism must be undergone before a person is saved, those people who hold to that kind of view will say that that's what baptism for the remission of sins means. And they'll point to texts in scripture that they would argue support that notion. I, however, do not think that's what it means. I think it both fails to grasp what the uh, authors of the Nicene Creed meant, it fails to, to acknowledge what or to recognize what the biblical authors meant, and it fails other things, it fails a test of other things that biblical authors teach about salvation by grace through faith alone, which we'll mention in a moment. Um, so I think as, as, as Christians, we must affirm that an essential of faith is baptism for the remission of sins. But I think there's room within that for, under, for, for, for debating just what that means. As a Protestant, what I would say is that Christians who think that um, baptism is of little importance, I think they're really badly mistaken. If you think, gosh, I'm gonna, I, I'm saved now, praise God, and now eh, a few years or so I'll get baptized when I feel right or whatever, that I think is mistaken. And I, and I actually really respect, and, and, and I think if I were to start a church, which by the way would be a really bad idea, I am not meant to be a pastor, I don't think. But if I were to start a church or lead a church or whatever, I probably would have a baptismal right there on the, by the lectern, right by the pulpit. Um... I think, and you see, you see this in Scripture, that as soon as somebody comes to make a profession of Christ in the congregational setting within, a, you know, in the in the community of Christ, it makes sense to have them um, represent their their act of faith symbolically via baptism, even if they don't know all the details of what the Christian faith entails. So, I'm just trying to give you an example of of how baptism for remission of sins might be argued. You could say, like I do, that um, baptism is for the remission of sins in the sense that it is an expression of one's um, gratitude to God for the remission of sins. Now, I'm not saying you're going to buy that interpretation. I'm just saying there's room within the language of baptism for the remissions of sins to, to, to argue about just what that means. And so what I'm identifying as this number 10 essential is simply the recognition that baptism is for the remission of sins, Whether, however it is you, you understand that. And then, like I said, the future resurrection of all the dead, which rules out hyperpreterists. But now let's turn to the Chalcedonian Creed. So Nicaea was in 325, and Chalcedon was, was it 325 or 327? Anyway, the 320s, uh, and Chalcedon was uh, a century or so later. And Chalcedon, at Chalcedon, the church confesses one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man, to be acknowledged in two natures. So we've got the hypostatic union, the union of the two natures of Christ in his person, his hypostasis. So you've got the divine nature of Christ and the human nature of Christ uh, united in his person, in his hypostasis. So that, I think, is a that, that Chalcedonian definition um, demands that. So we're up to 12. We've got three more to go. Um, 
we see in places like Matthew 20, 28 and 1 Timothy 2, 6 and Romans 5, 8, that Christ died for sinners. And the word for in English translations is a translation of either the of I, one of either of two Greek prepositions, either anti or huper. And either one in these numerous contexts in the New Testament in which Jesus is said to have died for sinners, it has the, the, the notion of substitution. That Jesus, uh, and not penal substitution, mind you. I do believe in penal substitution, but I don't think you can make a case from Scripture or from the creeds that penal, the penal element of penal substitution is an essential to the faith. And so I will fellowship and minister with lovingly and, and, and comfortably um, brothers and sisters in Christ who deny penal substitutionary atonement, provided that they still affirm substitutionary atonement. But what would that mean? It would mean that you would say that death is the consequence of sins. And that Christ bore that in our place. And notice the consequence doesn't necessarily imply punishment. That's why you can affirm substitutionary atoning death of Christ without affirming its penal aspect. And so I would say, based on those texts and others, and how and how fundamental to Christ's saving work this substitution is said to, have, to be, um, for that reason I would identify substitutionary atonement of Christ as an essential of the faith. But then we could also look at Hebrews 7, 25-26, in which the author says that Christ is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, Christ, since he always lives to make intercession for them, and, and that's because he resurrected immortal. But notice what, it goes on, what the author goes on to say. It was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained. So you can see here that the saving work of Christ is predicated upon, it's contingent upon his lack of sin, his sinlessness. And so number 14 here, I'm calling the sinless life of Christ. He has not ever sinned and never will. We've got one more to go. Uh, I told you it would be 15. And here I want to look at Romans 3, 23 to 25 and 28. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Paul says. Um, we have been justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus to be received by faith. One is justified by faith apart from works of the law. To the one who works, Paul says in, in the next chapter, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So you can see here that if salvation is a free gift, then it's not merited. It's not um, received by working for it. And if you think you work for it, then what you're claiming to receive, you're not in fact receiving as a gift. You're receiving it as what's due to you. Now you might dispute my logic there. Fine. But I think that's sound, and for that reason, I'm as, in, as number 15, I'm saying that salvation through faith alone is an essential of faith. What we Protestants call sola fide. Salvation by grace through faith alone. In other words, there is nothing that you can or must do to in order to be rewarded with salvation. All you must do is trust in the substitutionary atoning work of Christ and, and all of the things that entails, which we've just covered. 
So this is what I'm considering for the time being, tentatively, my list of 15 essentials of the faith. Uh, everyone has sinned except for Christ. We are we have been created by God and we're accountable to that creator. Yes, Robert, I am excluding Catholics. I'm on the record. Well, let me rephrase that. I'm excluding Roman Catholicism. So I think it's possible that there are many identifying Roman Catholics who de who who actually do believe that salvation comes through grace by faith alone. But I don't think that's official dogma. And so if you're a good Roman Catholic, yes, I think you're excluded from this list. Now that might make me cold-hearted and I and maybe I'm wrong. I'll find out on the day of judgment, if not sooner. But nevertheless, that's where I stand right now. So Number one, everyone has sinned except for Christ. Number two, God has created us and we're accountable to him. Number three, because we have sinned and are accountable to that creator, we therefore deserve his judgment. Number four, we must believe in the deity of Christ. Number five, the doctrine of the Trinity, that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all equally and eternally the one God of Israel, but they aren't each other. Uh, number six, the virgin birth of Jesus. Number seven, his death, burial, and resurrection. Number eight, his future return. Number nine, the unity of the global church. Everyone who affirms these essentials of the faith, wherever they're at in the globe, no matter what denomination they're a part of, etc., they are brothers and sisters in Christ. Number 10, baptism for the remission of sins, however you understand that. Number 11, the future resurrection of all the dead. Number 12, the hypostatic union or dual natures of Christ. Number 13, the substitutionary atoning sacrifice of Christ. Number 14, the sinless life of Christ and number 15, salvation by grace through faith alone. Now, I'm, I stand by this list, at least for the time being. I stand by this list. But this raises um, an interesting question, which is who, upon um, making a decision to use common modern evangelical language, who, upon deciding to follow Christ and trusting in his atoning work on, the, on his or her behalf, who knows, who understands all 15 of these things? Very few. I, 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 would, I posit that, I submit to you, that when a person becomes saved, um, they will understand some subset and accept some subset of this list. But very often, they will be either unaware of some of these or even outright deny them. So what does that mean? Does that mean that person isn't saved? I'm going to suggest that maybe not. I'm going to suggest that this list is what I said it was earlier. A list of essentials upon uh, that are identifying of Christianity. This list is what defines Christians. And every Christian um, who affirms all of these can comfortably be called a Christian. In other words, I'm not saying that this is a, is a list that you have to have every 15 of the every one of these 15 checked off in your mental in, in, in mentally assenting to them in order to be saved. What I'm offering this list as is a way of determining whether you can comfortably fellowship with another professing Christian. Now, when somebody embraces Christ, there are some of those things I think that they will naturally affirm just as part of professing uh, to be saved by Christ in whom they place their trust. They're going to be recognizing that they've sinned, that they're accountable to the Creator, and that they are deserving of judgment. Um, maybe they will understand 
that he died and was buried in Rose. Uh, but, and maybe the substitutionary atonement. But a lot of these things, they're either going to be unaware of or outright deny. And I don't necessarily think means that think that means they're not saved. If somebody is saved and either doesn't understand, doesn't already know about all of these and assent to them or even deny some of them, I think they might still be saved and they just haven't yet been sanctified enough to reach the point where they are affirming all of these. And I think the problem becomes, I don't think the problem is merely being unaware of, or merely failing to assent to, or even merely denying these that is in and of itself something that precludes a person from being saved. Rather, I think that if somebody persists in ignorance of these and in even denying any of these, that persistence is an indication that they haven't truly been saved. It's a, it's a red flag. It's, a, it's, a, um, it's an indication that the person isn't the new creation that would, if they were indeed a new creation, eventually and comfortably accept. So, for, for whatever it's worth, I'm proposing that this is a good list of the essentials of Christianity. They are the list of things which can, upon which the church can unite. Um, you can comfortably fellowship with and minister alongside of somebody who affirms all of these, even if they disagree with you on Calvinism or millennialism or, you know, whatever, whatever secondary non-essential of the faith. Um, and so first of all, that's what I'm offering here. And secondly, I'm suggesting that if somebody has truly been saved, then given a sufficient amount and not too terribly long of time, um, they will submit to the teaching of scripture and to the testimony of the church and through time, submit uh, willingly and comfortably and, and, and joyously to this list of essentials. And if they don't, if they persist in disbelief despite being, despite being presented with the truth of these things and they continue to fight it, um, I would count that as a, as a um, red flag, an indication that they very well may not be saved. Uh, Jimmy says, okay, so I'm going to um, uh, wrap up here in a few minutes, but I want to uh, field some questions that I am seeing come up. Um, Jimmy asks, another question is essential for what? Essential for fellowship in the same body of believers? Essential for having eternal life? Well, hopefully I've just answered that question for you, Jimmy. So I'm not saying, oh yeah, and you say I like that. So I'm not saying this is essential for having eternal life. I'm saying these are essential for fellowship and, and, and co-ministering with one another. But I also think that somebody who has truly been regenerate, somebody who's truly been saved, will eventually affirm all of these. And to the extent that they persist in disbelieving them, that I think calls into question their salvation. And yeah, Susan puts it well, essential for being comfortable having fellowship with someone from a different subset of believers. I think that's fair. Now, I am not infallible, obviously. Um, I'm open to the possibility that there are either aspects to this list that are not essential or maybe even outright false or to the possibility that there's not enough in this list. I'm open. But I'd like to submit, I'd like to commend this list to you, my um, uh, uh, pitiful The Apologetics Watchers. I'm calling you pitiful because you have to put up with me. Um, as a good starting point for uh, narrowing in on a list of essentials. Um, 
And I want to hear what you think. So please, in the comments, or email me. My email address is right there on the screen, theapologetics at hotmail.com, um, with where you think I might have gone astray. Now, I'll be honest with you, if, if you're coming from a perspective of Roman Catholicism or Oneness Pentecostalism or so-called Biblical Unitarianism, which isn't biblical at all, um, I frankly am not interested in, in your commentary. What I'm interested from on this video is commentary from you if you disagree with me on this list, and yet you um, are an evangelical professing you know, Protestant like me um, who agrees on all of these things but disagrees with me that these are the essentials. If you think that I'm including too much or including too little, I want to hear from you in the comments or via email. But in the meantime, what I would suggest is this. Going back to this slide, what's missing from here? Well, cessationists believe that the miraculous gifts of the Spirit ceased in the first century. Continuationists do not. Where are tongues in this list? Where are um, the, the, the continuation of the spiritual gifts in this list? Nowhere. How about um, the nature of tongues? The Bible seems pretty clearly to teach that tongues are human languages that people haven't learned and yet are supernaturally gifted the ability to speak. But of course, Pentecostals and other charismatics believe that um, at least one subcategory of tongues is an angelic prayer language that's unintelligible to human beings. Should about a Honda. I'm, that's a little. I'm 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 poking a little bit of fun, but I recognize that that can be offensive. And if you take offense to that, I'm sorry. I'm just saying that's kind of the stereotype, right? That's the caricature of this kind of talk. Tongue. Should about a Honda. Should about a Honda. You know, blah 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 blah. Where is the the nature of tongues in this list? It's nowhere. What about soteriology? I am a Calvinist, but. Those of you watching are, many of you will be either Arminians, provisionists a la Leighton Flowers, open theists, um, or other forms of non-Calvinists. But where is uh, theistic determinism or predestination or even foreknowledge? Where is it in this list? It's nowhere. Now, just as a side note, I mentioned open theism. The reason why I'm a little on the fence with whether or not open theism is heresy is because I think James White, when he debated, he debated somebody on Unbelievable who's an open theist, and he argues that in the Old Testament, the uh, the miraculous foreknowledge, the supernatural foreknowledge of God, is marked is is is, is the quintessential difference between God and false idols. And so the argument that James White and others are going to make is that really should be another list, another item in this list. That it is essential that you affirm God's perfect foreknowledge of the future, whether Calvinist or not, because that's a um, fundamental, the foundational difference between Yahweh in the Old Testament and false idols. I'm open to that argument. I'm sympathetic toward it. And for that reason, I'm kind of on the fence with what I think of open theism. But at least... Calvinism versus other versus non-open theist forms of non-Calvinism, including Molinism, which I already I forgot to mention. Um, the differences between those groups is nowhere here in that list. What else isn't in this list? The the age of the universe. I am one of those really weird young Earth creationists. But you know what? Um, my old Earth creationists can affirm everything on this list that I do. And you know what? So too can theistic evolutionists and progressive creationists.
they affirm all of this list too. How about um, how about eschatology? I am a preterist. Um, I have done an episode on this previously in the show, and, and I want to stress that I'm what is often called a partial preterist, but I think that's bogus language. I'm a preterist, meaning I believe that most of the prophecies in Scripture have been fulfilled. There are few that remain to be fulfilled, most especially the resurrection of the dead and the return of Christ, but, uh, but most other biblical prophecies have been fulfilled. So I'm a preterist, but there are also futurists, idealists, and historicists who all, to, for one reason or another, differ with me on the timing of eschatological events. Where, where are our differences on this list? Nowhere. What about the difference? I'm an amillennialist, meaning I don't believe that the thousand years in the book of Revelation is to be a literal thousand years during which Christ will literally reign on earth in the midst of his people. Postmillennialists, like me, believe that Christ will return after the period of time identified as a thousand years in the book of Revelation, um, but they believe the nature of that millennium is different. And then premillennialists, uh, which include dispensationalists, believe that Christ will return at some point in our future at the beginning of a thousand year literal reign on earth. Where are our differences in this list? Nowhere. Um, how about how about within dispensationalism, or at the very least within premillennialism, you've got pre-wrath, mid-wrath, and post-wrath rapture views, I think. Where is that difference in this list? Nowhere. What about um, what about uh, pedo-baptism versus credo-baptism? I'm a Baptist. I'm a credo-baptist. So I believe that the people, the proper subjects of baptism, the ordinance of baptism, are believing, um, I was going to say adults, but that's not quite true. Anybody who is able to make a, um, a, a genuine profession of faith in Christ is a proper subject of baptism. But paedo-baptists, like in particular the Presbyterians, believe that you should baptize infant children of believers. Where is that difference in this list? Nowhere. What what else am I missing, guys? Can you can you name other uh, in-house Christian debates that I have failed to identify here? Um, if you mention any in the chat, I'll, I'll I'll verbalize them. But the point I'm getting at is that there are all these many different areas of biblical doctrine in which. Christians disagree with one another, but those differences don't fall anywhere in this list. There's no possible way I can see for, ah, good one, Susan, I'll get to that in a second. There's no possible way I can identify for justifying whether in, whether by, uh, by scripture or by creeds, um, identifying that any of these areas that I've just mentioned are, 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 are violations of the essentials or are part of the essentials and that therefore merit um, division. Um, Susan mentions another example, uh, the Sabbath. So many Christians consider the Sunday, uh, consider Sunday to be the Christian Sabbath. They're wrong. <laughs> I'm sorry. The Sabbath is Friday evening to Saturday evening. Now, 
beyond that, you could certainly discuss whether or not Christians were taught by the early church in the book of Acts to meet on Sunday, and we could talk about that. Um, I don't think so. But either way, the point is, whether you think the Sabbath remains Friday to evening, uh, Friday evening to Saturday evening like I do, or whether you think that the, um, I'll get to that too, Robert, or whether you think that um, uh, the Sabbath shifted in the Christian context Sunday, that's not on this list. Robert Nass Worthington uh, mentions transubstantiation in the chat. Now this is an interesting one. Uh, remember what I said about transubstantiation earlier. It's the doctrine that in the Eucharist, um, the bread and the wine literally transform into the body and blood of Christ, but they share the accidents, the appearances of bread and wine. Is that on this list? Is either an affirmation or denial of that on this list? No. Now, Robert makes a good. Robert might make a good point if he if he's typing and I just haven't seen his chat yet. That Jesus seems in John uh, in the book of John to say that eating of his flesh and blood is essential to salvation. I might have, maybe I should have included that, but that raises the question uh, that is disputed between Roman Catholics, Lutherans, and Protestants, which is, what does Jesus mean when he says you must eat my blood and drink, or eat my flesh and drink my blood? Roman Catholics take it literally for no reason at all, except for tradition. And there's no, there's no biblical reason for taking that literally. Um, but we Protestants do not. Um, that neither of those two views denies the essentiality of what Jesus means there. What I would argue is that in the context, it's explicit that by eating my flesh and drinking my blood, Jesus means following me, which which is already on the list, <laughs> right? The list that I've got up on the screen right now. So I don't think Roman Catholicism is a Christian because of its doctrine of transubstantiation. I think that Roman Catholicism isn't Christian because of some of the other things it believes that aren't in this list or that are denied, that are violations of this list. But what I will say is that transubstantiation doesn't exist in a vacuum. Roman Catholics who believe in transubstantiation believe that the transubstantiation process is a miracle performed by the Altar Christus, the priest, um, who performs a ceremony that miraculously performs the trans transformation. And this altar Christus, this, this substitute Christ, this priest, isn't merely miraculously transforming. I, I, I'm, I didn't assume you were Catholic, Robert. I just think you raised a really interesting point that was deserving of, of more conversation. Um, the altar Christus, this priest who miraculously transforms the bread and wine into the blood, blood, flesh and blood of Christ, does so as part of the Mass, which is one of the most ugly, disgusting, blasphemous things I think any professing Christian could believe. Because the Mass denies the once and for all um, sufficient atoning work of Christ. Why? Because the, according to Roman Catholic dogma, you must consume this trans, this bread and wine after it's been miraculously transformed into the blood and uh, flesh of Christ by the altar Christus. You must do that to be saved. And what the Mass is, 
in which context the bread and wine are so transformed, that context is one that includes a re a continuation of the sacrifice of Christ. Christ's self-sacrifice, according to the author of Hebrews, was once for all. <laughs> Susan asks, why don't I say what I really think? Oh, yeah, well, I mean, I, I toned down my words. Um, the author of Hebrews says that this atoning work of Christ was accomplished once for all. Christ doesn't have to further have his body broken and further have his, his blood spilled in order to save people. But that's what the Mass is. It's disgusting and it's vile. We do not need to continue to shed Christ's blood and break his body. He did that once for all. So that is, for me, a, an extreme... This might be another thing I should add to the list. Anyway, hopefully, Robert, that, that addresses kind of what you might have been thinking about. So we've got this this great... Okay, now, actually... <laughs> I've just listed a number of in-house debates, which I can see no legitimate reason. Oh, duh! What am I most known for? Rethinking hell, right? So where in this list is a belief in the everlasting uh, torment of the resurrected, immortal, and living forever wicked in hell? Nowhere. You can make, you can make no case for that being an essential of faith. The closest you can come to is in Hebrews when the author says eternal judgment is a basic of the faith. But he doesn't say that it's an essential of the faith. He says it's a basic. Um, what's more, what is meant by eternal judgment is itself up for debate. Annihilationists like me, we, we believers in what's called conditional immortality, and if you want to learn more about that, just check out RethinkingHell.com or the Rethinking Hell YouTube channel. We believe in eternal judgment too. What we, differ, what we disagree with when it comes to what most of the church believes is the nature of that everlasting judgment. Whereas believers in eternal torment think that that judgment is actually an everlasting punishing process by which the lost remain alive and immortal forever in hell so that they can continuously be punished consciously for their sins, we believe that the everlasting judgment is being dead. The wicked will be raised, they will be judged, they will be sentenced to suffer the wages of sin, which is death, according to Romans 6.23, and they will never ever live again. They will be dead forever. That's eternal judgment. And I'll add that universalists could try to affirm the underlying Greek phrase, translated eternal judgment. But even if they couldn't do that very well, again, the author doesn't seem to say that the, the eternal judgment is an essential of the faith. He just says it's a basic. It's something that should, is, is really obvious. But there could be lots of things that are obvious but still aren't essential to the faith. Right? So I think there's this host of differences over which we Christians unjustifiably divide. There's no need to require that your congregants believe in a dispensationalist, uh, premill dispensational premillennial view of eschatology, like Calvary Chapel does. There's no reason, no need, no justification for requiring your congregants to believe in predestination. As it, and I say that as a Calvinist. There's no justification for your church requiring your members to believe that the earth is 6,000 years old, like I believe. 
There's no justification for requiring members of your church to believe that the supernatural gifts of the Spirit have ceased, or, at the very least, that tongues are human languages, like I believe. And on and on and on the list goes. No justification for it at all. Now, that's not to say that you can't have distinctives. Right? You can have uh, uh, distinctives that mark you out as a... Um, uh, you know, your, your congregants all believe the essentials of the faith, but then we also accept these additional things. But those don't have to make, those, don't have, those aren't essentials of the faith, and they, they can make, make your congregation distinct without requiring that every single person believe it in order to be a member. At, at most, you could require that your teaching, that your staff believe it. And even that, I would say, is questionable. Because you could have somebody you could have somebody on staff, you could have a teacher, even a pastor, pastor a congregation that has a distinctive, like Calvary Chapel's dispensationalism. Um, you, they, could, they could deny that distinctive personally and never, and never challenge it in church. So when they preach, they can preach what the church's position is. If they're a Sunday school teacher, they can teach what the church's position is. And if they're asked, well, do you believe that? You could say, I'll tell you what, let's talk about that later. Or, or maybe you should go talk to the head pastor or, you know, whatever it might look like. There's no need, brothers and sisters, to require more than this list in order for people to minister, to fellowship with you and minister with you. Now, I want to make room for, um, uh, for some possible exceptions to... Um, where where they're not essentials, but they nevertheless might require um, separate churches. So, but you know what? I'll, I'll hint at them. Complementarianism versus egalitarianism. Pado-baptism versus credo-baptism. Um, and there may be others. Certain forms of church governance. Um um, congregational leadership, you know, plurality of elders versus a head pastor kind of a leadership. These and others, there, there may be a, a small list of things where there is no possible way to be in a church together because the views are mutually exclusive in critical in ways that are critical to church governance. And I'll, I'll talk more about those and some of the other non-essentials that I've discussed in the next episode within this series. But for the time being, I'm pretty happy with this list. This list, uh, <laughs> this list right here on the screen. And I, and I would love to see what you think. So, again, just I'll go through them one more time. And, and I'm doing this because uh, some of you don't watch the YouTube stream. Some of you listen to the podcast where I publish these sometime after they've been aired on YouTube. Number one, everybody has sinned except Jesus. Number two, we're, we've been created and we're accountable to our creator. Number three, we stand uh, properly condemned before God because of our sin. Number four, Jesus is God incarnate. Number five, God is triune. Number six, the virgin birth of Jesus. Number seven, his death, burial, and resurrection. Number eight, his future return. Number nine, the unity of the global church. Number 10, baptism for the remissions of sins. Number 11, future resurrection of all the dead. Number 12, the hypostatic union, that is the union between the dual natures of Christ and his hypostasis, his person. Number 13, the substitutionary atoning work of Christ. Number 14, the sinless life of Christ. And number 15, salvation by grace through faith alone. I think that list of 15 is a pretty good list. And I want to hear from you. Unless, unless you're a Roman Catholic, a oneness Pentecostal, a, um, a so-called biblical Unitarian, and, and you know, whatever. If you agree with me on these 15, 
but you don't agree that this list is correct, either because I've put too much into it, or because I've put too little into it, or because I've got one of them outright wrong, I want to hear from you. So in the comments below or in um, or via email, let me know what you think. I'd love to hear from you. I just want to hear why you disagree with me. So don't just tell me that you disagree with me. Give me biblical or creedal justification, maybe even logical, for why you think that I've uh, failed to include something in this list that I should or, or, or the other way around. Okay? Whew. All right. So hopefully, hopefully you've got a sense for the, my 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 passion for this. I think it's critical. We live in a day and age where more than ever before, arguably, at least for a long time, um, biblical Christianity is under attack, and it's being increasingly rejected by a world that desperately needs um, the saving work of Christ. They need to they need to embrace the saving work of Christ and be saved. Now, how, as the church, are we going to meet that need? It's not going to happen by dividing from one another. So let's unite. Yes, let's debate. Yes, let's argue over these numerous non-essentials that we disagree with. Nothing in Scripture is unimportant. So yes, let's debate them. Let's let's get our let's get our blood flowing a little bit. Maybe even get a, you know get a little red faced when we're when we're debating each other. Fine, but we can still fellowship with each other and love one another and minister with one another and serve with one another. As long as we affirm this core, um, identifying set of essential doctrines. That's that's my passion. That's why I. Um, and have devoted so much of my time to the topic of hell. That's what, you know what? I I have said that there, and, and stand by this, there are versions of universalism that are not heretical because they believe in salvation by grace through faith alone. They don't believe anybody goes to heaven without embracing Christ in saving repentance and faith. I can think of no possible way for identifying that as a heresy. And you know what? Because I say that, some of my own fellow conditionalists have disinvited me from conferences I was going to speak at. Again, I'm a conditionalist, I'm an annihilationist, and I think I think it's in this coming month, March, or maybe it was March of last year. Anyway, I was supposed, I was scheduled to speak at a conference on conditionalism um, or annihilationism. And then I was disinvited because... I count some universalists as brothers and sisters in Christ. How messed up is that? I'm sorry, but that church that disinvited me should be ashamed of themselves. But anyway, the point is, I'm so, I believe so much in this watchword of Christian peacemakers, so much in unity on the essentials that I'm willing to get a bad name and be disinvited from conferences by my own fellow annihilationists because I'm willing to stand up for the, um, for the reality that there are evangelical universalists who are saved and, and who aren't denying an essential of the faith. And I'll stand by that to my dying day. All right, I've been yam yammering on forever. Thank you for those of you who've been watching live. I really appreciate it. Um, and... Uh, I agree, or sorry, and, and 
<laughs> I just got lost because looking at somebody. Robert in the chat says, I agree with you that we should unite over this list. We should also divide over the list. As a former United Methodist, I pray for division. So I don't know what's distinctive about the United Methodists, Robert, uh, in terms of what they deny on this list that I'm putting back up on the screen now. So if you can tell me in the chat, I'd be interested to hear it. But I agree with you that um, we should divide over this list. Remember, the, the watchword of Christian peacemakers is not um, in essentials and in, the, or in, in, in essentials diversity, right? That's not what the watchword is. The watchword is in essentials unity and only in the non-essentials diversity or liberty. So I agree with you, Robert. We should be willing to divide over this list. I will not comfortably fellowship with or minister alongside of somebody who denies one of these essentials. And I think that's legitimate. So again, I agree with you, Robert. I'd be interested to know what United Methodists deny in this list. Um, but anyway, hopefully you get a sense for my passion, and um, I really don't know what the next episodes in this series will be like when I cover the second and third aspects of the watchword. Remember, those are in Non-Essentials Liberty and in All Things Charity. Oh, so uh, Susan points out that it could be the United Methodists' willingness to embrace LGBTQ-type stuff. And yeah, that's fair. So... Um, Anyway, that might be something I cover more. Maybe, maybe there is room in this list for an affirmation, a commitment to um, a biblical view of sexuality and relationships. There might very well be. So if you can make a case for those for an affirmation of biblical sexuality and relationships as being an essential of the faith, put it in the comments below or in the email or, or email me at the email on the screen. Just to be clear, I do I affirm. <laughs> the biblical view of sexuality and relationships. I, I, I do not think that a committed Christ follower can remain um, a, a, uh, a homosexual or a practicing homosexual uh, or, or identify as transgender or whatever. Um, but I have a hard time justifying that. So I'd be interested to hear your case for why. But anyway, that's a little, that's where my passion is, this unity in the essentials and in future episodes, which I don't know quite what they'll look like yet. I'll cover the other two aspects of the watchword for Christian peacemakers. Um, thanks for joining me. I really appreciate it, especially those of you who've watched live and have commented in the chat and with whom I've interacted um, therein. <coughs> but also thank to you who have been watching this um, after this stream was archived in the channel. Again, email me or let me know in the comments what you think. Don't forget that in early March, as I explained in the last episode of this uh, show, I will be debating a Roman Catholic on the Doctrine of Sola Scriptura. You can look uh, look at the YouTube channel The Gospel Truth, which is hosted by Marlon... I think it's Marlon Wilson. Um, you can be on the lookout for that. Uh, and then in late March, I will be traveling to South Carolina, I believe it is, for a two-on-two -two debate on the topic of hell. I'll say more about that in the next episode of The Apologetics so you can have context. But if you want, you can just watch Rethinking Hell live. And that reminds me that I should, as I, as I start to sign off, remind you that The Apologetics is streamed every other Monday at 6 p.m. 9 p.m. 6 p.m. Pacific 9 p.m. Eastern on the other Mondays the ones in between I'm doing rethinking hell live same day same time so if you want to check out rethinking hell and haven't done so before then just go to youtube.com slash rethinking hell and tune in a week from today Monday February 15th uh, the day after Valentine's Day I think uh, for the next episode of rethinking hell live again youtube.com slash rethinking hell Monday 
February 15th at 6 p.m. Pacific, 9 p.m. Eastern. But if not, if you don't want to hear my heresies about hell, then but you do like The Apologetics, and I hope that's you. I hope that if you don't like my work on hell, you still appreciate this show, in which case you can return two weeks from today, Monday, February 22nd, uh, youtube.com slash theapologetics, 6 p.m. Pacific, 9 p.m. Eastern. Um, I guess that's all I've got for you today. Thanks again for joining me. I really appreciate it, and I'll look forward to seeing you next time. God bless. I've been your host, Chris Date, and thanks so much for watching The Apologetics, where we think together through what we believe, why we believe it, and not something else. If you've enjoyed this episode, please click the thumbs up, like icon, the subscribe button, and the bell icon to receive notifications when new videos are streamed or uploaded. Either way, come back in two weeks for the next episode of The Apologetics, streaming live on YouTube every other Monday at 6 p.m. Pacific. Until then...